Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for being here. My name is Justin Logan. I'm the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you here to our book forum for Professor Patrick Porter's book, The Global Village Myth, Distance, War, and the Limits of Power. Um, it's not uncommon here in Washington to hear people complain about the tyranny of distance. In particular, you'll hear uniform military complain that it, we have to traverse such great distances to get into trouble. What they frequently fail to observe is that that may work in reverse as well. Perhaps our various adversaries have their own tyrannies of distance to overcome, to reach us here uh, and influence us here. Well, very much in keeping with that sort of theme is Professor Porter's book, which pushes on this idea, as one pundit recently put it, when someone sneezes on the other side of the world, the United States catches a cold. Professor Porter looks at, scrutinizes these sorts of arguments and in many instances finds them wanting. I want to go ahead and introduce Professor Porter to you today and then our discussant, Austin Long, uh, and then get out of the way so that you can hear the book talk uh, and hear some informed uh, criticism of the book. Patrick Porter is the Chair of Strategic Studies at the University of Exeter and the Academic Director of the Strategy and Security Institute there. Before that, he worked at the University of Reading from 2011 to 2015 and the British Defense Academy, King's College London, from 06 to 11. His previous university press book was entitled Military Orientalism, Eastern War Through Western Eyes, and was listed on the UK Chief of Defense Staff's reading list, uh, and received plaudits here in the US as well. He was awarded a Leverholm Fellowship for 2013 to 2014, during which he wrote this book, um, and I think that you'll see both from the discussion here today and the really sterling, this is what people are interested in, blurbs on the back of the book, uh, that he's done a, a very good job with this argument. His DPhil is from Oxford University. Our discussant today is Austin Long, who's an assistant professor teaching security policy. Um, he previously worked, excuse me, at Columbia's uh, SIPA. He previously worked as an associate political scientist at RAND, serving in Iraq as an analyst and advisor to MNFI uh, and for the US military. Uh, he worked as a consultant to Lincoln Labs on a study of technology and urban operations and counterinsurgency. Uh, recent publications include Deterrence from Long War to Cold War, six, uh, Lessons from Six Decades of RAND Research, and On Other War, Lessons from Five Decades of RAND Counterinsurgency Research. Uh, so I think he'll have some things to say about this, uh, 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 this sort of zeitgeist in Washington today about small wars, chaos, and anarchy coming to uh, reach the United States conceivably at home. Uh, he was a co-founder of the Working Group on Insurgency and Irregular Warfare at MIT Center for International Studies uh, and is a participant in RAND's Counterinsurgency Board of Experts. He has a BS from the Georgia Institute of Technology and his PhD is from MIT. So with that, I think I'll turn the podium over to Professor Porter for the book talk. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed, Justin. Uh, I'm very grateful to you and to the Cato Institute and to Austin uh, for making this possible, inviting me to come along and talk about my book. <laughs> Most important part. 
available at all fine bookstores is the good news. Oh, thank you. Uh, although the bad news is that, unfortunately, it came out too late to appear on Osama bin Laden's bookshelf, apparently. <laughs> so what I think very few people here will be aware of is that way back in 1877, Lord Salisbury made an early critique of the smartphone and Google cartography, commenting on Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli's fear of Russia's threat to British India, he had the following thing to say, and I think this is, really captures the kind of spirit of the argument I'm trying to make. He said this, a great deal of misapprehension arises from the popular use of maps on a small scale. The distance between Russia and British India is not to be measured by the finger and the thumb, but by a ruler. There are between them deserts and mountainous chains measured by thousands of miles. And these are serious obstacles to any advance by Russia, however well planned such an advance might be. And despite all of the technological innovations between then and now, in a, my, my argument is in a very similar spirit. I wrote this book really because I was sceptical about the mental maps of our time, the way we think psychologically, if you like, the maps we carry around in our heads, the maps we carry like our smartphones where we think we can hold and, and rotate the world in our hands. And I've wrote about what we really might see as an elite consensus that has emerged amongst the foreign policy and military establishments that in generally, general terms, we in the US-led West, and I'm sorry in advance for me talking funny, I'm from Australia, I live in Britain, it's all very confusing, but in the, in the US-led West is what I mean, that we live in a dangerous globalized world where technology makes distance almost irrelevant, where distance hardly matters, where geographical barriers hardly count, a world that therefore we must continually tame back into order. And I, what I fear is that this idea is both overblown and mischievous, so it needs a closer look. So today what I want to do simply is three things. Firstly, talk about the idea, what I call the idea of globalism and the fear of the shrinking world, the notion that the world of security and conflict is flat borderless and uniquely dangerous and sketch a brief history of that idea. Secondly, I want to say what I think is wrong with it and why it doesn't survive close interrogation. And finally, I want to suggest some broad policy implications, not only or not even primarily about what the US and its allies should do in the world, but how debate itself is framed, how we think about the security environment. For those of you who are, who are already bored, the bottom line up front is this. The world, strategically speaking, is not flat. It's not flat. We hear often that it's getting smaller. And of course, on a very banal technical level, it must be true. It is true that technology can often compress physical space. People couldn't instantly text message each other. They couldn't launch intercontinental ballistic missile strikes or hijack planes before those things existed. But too often, and this is the core point, too often we confuse physical space with strategic space. Technology may shrink physical space, that is that which separates two things, but it does not necessarily shrink strategic space, that is the ability to project power affordably against resistance across the earth. And that there are two overarching problems with the global village concept. The first of all, quite simply, is that the same instruments that can compress can also enlarge in certain contexts. 
Secondly, human agency, through, particularly through the state, intervenes against the structural fact of globalisation. Globalisation, ladies and gentlemen, I want to argue, unlike Anthony Lake, I don't think is like the weather. I don't think it just is. It's something that states make and unmake, and that makes the spaces, the security spaces between us, actually quite elastic. So overall, the death of distance is exaggerated. So part one, the idea. Well, we live in an age of anxiety, and that anxiety is captured in a number of quotations by figures that also the Cato Institute is, is grappling with. Lord Robertson, the former Secretary General of NATO, claimed that, quote, in the global village, maybe I am the bobby on the beat. This is rather a British version of, of the notion. The, the Secretary General of NATO thinking of himself like a kind of benign global cop. Now, that in itself is quite disturbing as, a, as an account of the world. Uh, first of all, there's that strange innocence of an intimate village that can be easily patrolled, like walking around Swindon uh, or Scranton. And then the notion that of the hegemonic West as this disinterested bringer of order into chaos, right? Uh, good intentions with good results. It's quite, a, I think, a naive notion. Former head of MI6, Sir John Dawes, describes the world as, quote, much flatter and therefore more dangerous, even though, if you look at it, terrorist attacks in Britain, for example, or the US, are scarce in number compared to the 1970s, say. General Martin Dempsey, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, claims that the world is more dangerous than it's ever been. Think about that for a second. More dangerous than it's ever been. The worldwide commercial peace, he argues, birthed by the West, is making destructive technology available to a wider and more disparate pool of adversaries so that a single person with a computer can disrupt a city or a nation. He thought the victims of Genghis Khan had it tough. <laughs> and then the Investor's Business Daily says that it is hard to remember a time of greater danger. So much for the Cold War. Now, unlike some people, I'm in no mood for sort of complacent triumphalism. Uh, I've just been talking to Austin Long. What a lot of people in Europe don't seem to realise is there is something like a very serious war happening right on its doorstep. There, this is a time of economic turmoil. There are some brutal wars in Eastern Europe and the Middle East and escalating rivalries, I think, in East Asia. But the claims above still suggest a troubling loss of proportionality and also a nostalgia for the long, dangerous and unpredictable and poisoning competition between the US and its allies and the Soviet Union. So where does this all come from? Well, globalism itself is the fear that technology, whether it's weapons, communications, transport, somehow kills distance and collapses space. That the accelerated circulation of people, materials, capital, ideas, reduces the transaction costs of movement over space, creating dangerous pathways for the projection of violence. And this allegedly creates a world of offense dominance. Uh, and, in, and in turn, particularly thinking of the United States, that this erodes what is one of America's traditional security assets, the great bounty of good fortune of being far from most of the world's trouble spots, most of the world's centers of power and conflict. But at the same time, as well as this fear of the world closing in, there's also a, a sunny side to that myth, which is the world is also comfortably within reach. Uh, that this is also an ideology of power, that 
the world being as fragile as it is, the US-led West can step in like the Bobby and reimpose order at will. Politics, I think, as Thomas Hobbes once argued, is the fear of violent death. And the sense that the world is, sh is shrinking is an, actually an old idea. It sounds new, but it's actually an old idea, inherited from the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, it is brought together by a number of confluent things. Uh, first of all, the precipitate growth of American power in the middle of the 20th century, and the growth relative to the rest of the world in World War II being remarkably low in level to pain compared to what it had cost other powers to get to that point. Right? Very distressing war in many ways, but America arose from World War II um, as this colossus with extraordinary uh, confidence and extraordinary um, management of this situation to find itself um, being the object of great demand, that this was an empire by invitation, huge international demand for American patronage, for American power. But it also comes, I think, from the, it's also triggered by a, a series of very important external shocks. And in the book, which you're invited to inspect at greater length, uh, I go through a number of those critical shocks, principally 1941, Pearl Harbor, 1950 to 53, the Korean War and the Chinese entry into the Korean War, and then 2001, which is actually quite eerie in the way it reprises a number of the themes of those earlier shocks, 9-11 attacks. But what's also important is an idea, and that idea is what we might call liberalism or revolutionary liberalism. That is a liberal account of security. The idea that the United States is a fragile republic and that it can only be secure in an ideologically friendly world. And liberalism is important here, not only because it's a source of the identity of, of Western countries like Australia, my own country in America, but also that it resists any sort of sense of limitation. Liberalism does not agree very well with the notion that there are territorial geopolitical limits. And that actually is a fault line running through a lot of the debate today. If you read John Eikenberry saying that geopolitics is over, the notion that geopolitics is back and that power is constrained or that power weakens over space and time is quite offensive to the notion of a liberal universal account. This notion that you can only be safe by making others liberals or by, by creating liberal subjects abroad. So this is an old idea. It has come up with every innovation from the telegraph, the railway, the steamship, and the airplane. And then after World War II, it was triggered by air, the air power, nuclear, and missile revolutions. It took root in American strategic minds on the 12th of December, 1941. America, with its Pacific fleet in flames, awoke to discover that predators could strike seemingly from afar out of the blue. In the words of President Franklin Roosevelt, Americans can no longer measure their safety on miles on a map. This was so strong that George Orwell, writing only a few years later, actually got sick of the idea and said, and he might have been writing it of our, of our time, he, he noticed the automatic way in which people go on repeating certain phrases, like the abolition of distance, the disappearance of frontiers. The Chinese inv entry invasion into the Korean War was also a shocking moment because it linked together the idea of technological shrinkage with geopolitical shrinkage, the notion that America, which had for so long had the balance of power of Europe between it and other powers, all of a sudden was eyeball to eyeball with the world's threats, and that defeat somewhere could meet defeat anywhere, so that every, the world had become a single battle space or a set of dominoes, which is a kind of smallness in itself. And the 9-11 atrocities heightened this fear, the, the fact that the politics of the Middle East could seemingly erupt 
violently in Manhattan and Washington, D.C., terrified onlookers. And in the words of the 9-11 Commission, it proved that the American homeland is the planet. And the fear grew that the United States now lived in a world of, quote, failed states in a world of terror. And this notion endures. It was also, it's also evident in less spectacular ways. When that flight, Malaysian flight, disappeared in an ocean, I think part of the shock about that, as well as the distress of loss of life, was this mystery that oceans turn out to be still quite big things that are actually very difficult for us to master with our synoptic eyes. Now, I think we are pretty good at watching things like a, a, approaching armadas, right? A, a Pearl Harbor would be harder in some ways today than then. But it, we don't have the kind of image of the power, the godlike powers that shows like 24 suggests of this kind of all roving, all seeing eye. And the notion that a large plane could actually disappear was quite shocking to this sensibility. So why does all of this matter? It matters partly because it also fuels a sense of Western power. Um, you remember the phrase speed kills from the, the radiant days of the revolution in military affairs, the notion that actually these kind of technological innovations could bolster the West's ability to reorder the world at will. It matters because thinking in these terms, I think, makes it harder to think strategically. Strategy is about limitation. It's about concentration. Matching your resources and your goals, your power and your commitments is a balancing act that takes enormous discipline. It means you can't always do what you want. Yet, this is a doctrine that is limitless. And the war on terror was only the latest example of picking up a doctrine of limitless security interests to be pursued universally with very little guidance on how that can be disciplined. And rather than attempt to contain and limit one's adversaries, it leads to a mentality of rollback or a threat eradication, that you can't be secure unless certain things are actually wiped off the map. And this has had some pretty mixed results. Uh, so it makes the concept of security itself dangerously unbounded. It matters because the notion of globalised insecurity is one pillar of the idea of the Pax Americana. And this underpins the arguments of some like Max Boot, that the West's destiny is for ever more garrisoning and ever more counterinsurgency ground wars in the future. It matters because it fuels proposals closer to home. For example, ones to strengthen the security state beyond all recognition. The most recently, or most staggering example of this, the proposal from, I think, Senator Joseph Lieberman and others that the US create what they call an internet kill switch, that cyber had become such a dangerous pathway for globalised threats that the president should, in a, in a very real way, be empowered almost to shut down the internet. This, I think, would raise the eyebrows of some of the founding fathers. Now, it's true that expeditionary land wars and the whole movement for perpetual counterinsurgency, I think, is in low water. So one accusation against this book is it's dealing with yesterday's anxieties. But my response to that is, we've been here before. Um, we've been here before where we've learnt that lesson once again, as Robert Gates once said, not to fight massive utopian ground wars in Asia or the Middle East. But we've been here before and that can, that can fade. So I think it's important that the idea be engaged. And it may be the case that not every US policymaker or Australian policymaker thinks really in these ways, but such is the power of the rhetoric that it becomes the standard by which people are judged. And even more importantly, like Harry Truman say, or like President Obama over Syria and red lines, once that rhetoric is invoked, it becomes something that can entrap 
a president or a government into action. How true is it? Is it the case that technology kills distance? Well, quite simply, in testing this idea, I chose three cases that, that ought to be difficult for my sceptical counter-argument and ought to be an easy test for globalism. In other words, if it's not true, if it's not entirely true in these cases, then the idea might be suspect. And these cases are Al-Qaeda and the broader phenomenon of so-called net war, uh, China-Taiwan, the prospects of a successful Chinese amphibious invasion of Taiwan, uh, and the wider issue of the offence-defence balance and access denial in, in, in East Asia and Asia's maritime peripheries. And finally, uh, disruptive technologies, particularly drones and cyber war. And in each case, what I argue is that while it's, it's true that there are some shrinking effects, these are often offset by countervailing enlarging effects, and that at best this is a poor guide to the complex relationships not just between humans and geography, but also between technology and terrain. The distance is not simply a physical thing that can be measured by a ruler. Actually, it's created by a dynamic interaction between humans, doctrine, technology, and space. And that if that's the case, it can temper some of the threat inflation and suggests more prudent, maybe even more boring policy responses. And my policy responses, I'm warning you now, are extremely boring and middle ground and not very Cato in that sense. To talk briefly about Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda were supposedly, are supposedly the global guerrillas, the spearhead of a new breed of fighter, using the tools of the information age to devastate, outflank, and elude their more backward, more dinosaur state adversaries. And with the coming of the internet, it's been feared by a lot of globalists that Al-Qaeda has got hold of a virtual sanctuary, a, plat a platform online for both educating others in the dark arts of terrorism, and uh, as a platform for incitement. But what I try and argue is that al-Qaeda, if you go through it carefully, is still substantially constrained by distance and in two ways. Firstly, it suffered the fate of arousing the hostility of its enemies. It got attention. And that in itself made it harder to operate in the way of it operating. Once you hit a certain point on the radar, space can change alarmingly and dangerously around you. And that its adversaries' countermeasures, not all of them wise, uh, have helped to stretch the gap strategically so that complex, there's lots of lots of irregular and guerrilla violence around the world, but complex mass casualty terrorism over a far range is much harder to carry out against Western heartlands. Secondly, Al-Qaeda's main move after 9-11, which was to scatter and to disperse and to decentralise into a network, to separate itself across the world into a network. This was widely hailed as a genius move that made it a kind of virtual post-geographical enemy, but actually that in itself came at great costs. It helped to fragment its jihad. It, 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 it made it much harder to direct and strategize its own war against what it called the far enemy. Uh, and the real issue here is whether or not, and, and John Mueller this, I'm borrowing John, stealing John Mueller's phrases here in the audience, uh, was whether 9-11 was a harbinger or an aberration, whether it was the pattern for things to come or actually a, a, a violent and distressing but aberrant thing that actually didn't set a signpost for the future. Uh, some interpreted 9-11 as proof of the borderless and globalist deadliness of terrorist networks. And advocates of rollback, that is actually going on a vast... Uh, multi-theatre effort, not only to disrupt a terrorist network, but to transform 
other countries politically to make it impossible for those networks to thrive. Often spoke during debate as though there were a straight line between sanctuaries in the third world in Afghanistan and Western heartlands in Manhattan and Washington DC. And that actually is not simply not the case, that uh, this is very problematic of a direct pathway. Actually, Al-Qaeda, like any other strategic organization, relies upon a intricate train of logistical links, forward operating bases, if you like. It, it, the plot against the United States didn't just take place in sanctuaries in Afghanistan, Pakistan. It relied upon meeting houses in Hamburg, flight school training centers in Arizona, and startling gaps in domestic law enforcement, all of which, now I'm not saying, I'm not going to idealize homeland security here, but the operating environment is much more difficult around that now. The, the ease of operation is much harder. Um, it's not the case, as it once was, that hijackers like them could pass undetected, probably, through border security 68 times and operate freely in nine states. It's not the case that the FBI and the CIA between them are just as likely to miss 23 opportunities to disrupt the plot. So there is a sense here in which, in the dynamics of war itself and the pendulum of war, uh, the space is enlarged through interdiction, through disruption, through restraint. As for decentralizing into a globalized terrorist movement, it's true that this made bin Laden and his, and his men and women harder to smash. But it also created great vulnerabilities of command and cohesion. It led to, led to breakdowns within the movement over targets, methods, and priorities. It meant that the likes of Abu Zarqawi arose in Iraq, causing this great blowback. Al-Qaeda's own disastrous invasion of Iraq, in, fa in fact, from Algeria to Jordan. Simply the movement lost its discipline and its cohesion. What we also see is a degradation of capabilities. It's not the case, as some alarmists argue, that one can simply pick up an education in how to become a terrorist via the internet. Terrorism, like any other military trade, is a hard-won skill. Um, it's not simply absorbable for most people uh, on the web. And this tradecraft relies upon practical capabilities that need experiential, hard-won knowledge drawn often from in-person training. There's a reason, ladies and gentlemen, we don't train our troops um, on an online boot camp, right? There are real physical group dynamics which are irreplaceable. And this is actually true across the board about communications, by the way. It may be the case that Facebook or internet or email or phones can collapse distance in terms of literal communication, but they often come at great cost in terms of real communication, in terms of real uh, relationships. And this is also the case for practical training as well. Information technology can also have re reverse effects. Uh, it can place groups on a grid to be watched and intercepted. This is something we've seen in the Arab Spring, that it can empower us, it can actually strengthen state power. And it's, it's the case with domestic law enforcement intelligence agencies actually watching people talk to each other. And consider the state of bin Laden's actual hideout, his compound, when he was finally discovered at home. Um, for a figure who was often spoken of as this um, eight-foot-tall cybernetic mastermind sitting behind encrypted software, his hideout was remarkably low-tech. Right? To avoid detection, he avoided the internet, he had no phone, he relied on couriers to communicate, he only dared meet donors personally. In other words, there was not a free pathway from his headquarters to the Western heartlands. In fact, this was not a free way at all. Against prepared defenders, it became a dangerous two-way zone of hostility where he could be hunted. Part of the difficulty here is also the assumption that failed states in themselves, or fragile states, 
are effective staging posts for long-range warfare. But what any competent outfit actually needs is a relatively stable, reasonably well-governed, securely governed space with decent infrastructure and a sympathetic regime, not vortexes of violence and criminality. The mere existence of some people, say, living in Somalia, for example, or Yemen, does not necessarily mean that they pose a first-order threat in terms of access. As for the threat of nuclear terrorism, which clearly deserves prudent countermeasures, there are also great geographical obstacles here there as well. In fact, John Mueller, who I keep citing obsessively, sycophantically, calculates that there is a multi-20-step process from successfully obtaining higher enriched uranium to assembling a skilled team to smuggling the device in great secrecy through in increasingly monitored space. So Al-Qaeda, whilst remaining, I think, a non-trivial uh, thing, while remaining something obviously deserving of vigilance, in a sense got lost in space, at least over this period. The story is far from over, but I think that this suggests that given the nature of the space it's operating in, a more modest counter-terrorist policing, judicious raiding, disruptive raiding, whilst above all refusing to be baited by this largely mythical but powerful image of the enemy as a globalised super threat. Another case I talk about something perhaps more uh, pressing at the moment is East Asia, and in particular trying to pick a hard case where you have technology and geography almost squaring off against each other. That is, one large, materially stronger power, People's Republic of China, deploying offensive technology to try and overcome the enemy exploiting the defensive properties of terrain. And what could be a better example of that than amphibious war, right? Because that is a great ge geographical challenge of translating offensive invading forces from one geographical medium, the sea, onto land against resistance. Now, this, of course, can't be too precise, but this, what I try and offer is a sort of military estimate where I try and give the conditions as well as possible to the People's Republic of China, i.e. no American cavalry riding into the rescue, uh, overwhelming surprise first strike from long-range artillery before a seaborne invasion. And what I, try, what I argue for, even in that worst case for Taiwan, is that Taiwan would either uh, successfully disrupt the invading uh, forces or at least cause China a world of pain and hurt in the process of going down. The dying sting would be very painful indeed. And there's a broader issue here about access denial. That as Christopher Lane once said, the technologies of today, the, although they, because they have the, the capability of inflicting great violent firepower over long range, because of that, paradoxically, they actually make the world larger. Because actually using those that military technology for a politically uh, effective uh, outcome is getting much more difficult. And in a sense, conquest, at least over water, may be becoming an expensive rarity more than ever. Now, this is actually both, I think, good news and bad news, bad news for countries like the US and for China. China, if you think about it, uh, although prodigiously rising economically, in some ways is, is very hemmed in geopolitically, because a lot of its smaller neighbours are also acquiring access denial technologies and also warily watching its rise. Someone's described China as actually a dragon in a bathtub for that reason. That is also bad news for a United States wanting to remain a, a West, if you like, a, a, a hemispheric West Asian hegemon, because in the event of China and America going to the mat, it would make its forward operating positions very vulnerable, fighting its way back in would become increasingly complicated. Now, I'm not 
going to make too many ambitious predictions here. I think the US would probably prevail, but the costs are so bad, potentially, that they're almost unthinkable. Now, this is a, both a source of anxiety, but I think it should also be a source of security. If it's the case that China is hemmed in, that America is hemmed in, the takeaway there is that this is an Asian security environment which is not destined to be ruled by any one power, which, act, which means that actually everyone can calm down a bit, that we need to actually look at much more sensibly at levels of collaboration and coexistence here. I don't think America as an Asian power is going away anytime soon. In fact, America, in terms of its strategic identity, has been an Asian power for a lot longer than it's been a European power in that sense. So I'm quite realistic about that. But I think there are alternatives to talk about talking about either hegemony or going home, which is the reflex in quite a lot of at least the public debate. So in terms of access denial, what I try and argue, looking in particular at RAND's estimates, is that we live in more of an era of sea denial, that is, the ability to attack an enemy's ships, find and sink them, as opposed to an era of sea control, that is, the ability to protect ships by preventing others attacking them. It's easier to stop someone projecting power over sea than to project power itself. Now, none of this is written in stone. None of this is a law, right? Weapons don't make war themselves. It relies upon good doctrine. It relies upon paying attention. It relies upon a whole bunch of other stuff. But for a well-prepared, prudent defender with good doctrine, like I think Taiwan is showing itself to be, for example, uh, there is a great scope for actually fortifying the defensive space. Um, so I think this can temper some of the alarm about the rise of, of China and some of the alarm that we could wake up one morning to find East Asia suddenly becoming effectively a Chinese domain with other countries rolling over and appeasing it. I think that there's even good ar arguments for saying that what Vietnam could do in the case of a Chinese invasion, uh, doesn't have a good history by the way, uh, could be quite formidable indeed. So where does this all leave us? And I also have a chapter on disruptive technologies in cyber. Very happy to talk about that in the q and but I'm conscious not wanting to trespass on Austin's time. Where does this all lead us just generally? I think this is a basis. I don't try and lay out a detailed strategic program for the United States, and I do appreciate your patience in listening to someone with a foreign accent talking about your foreign policy. But now that you're in Darwin exercising, we're all Americans now in a sense. But I think this insight or this argument can be part of the basis for realising that one can afford a more restrained strategy. But what's really important here is that we get beyond the, this unhelpful dichotomy of global hegemony versus running home and putting your head under the bed. It's, it's so often this, this obsession with tracking down isolationists or declaring that the only future is empire or nothing. I think that's part of actually the, the mentality of the small world itself. If you think the world is such a small place and your only choice is those two things, you're missing out both upon the vastness of the geography between you and the rest of the world and also the intermediate choices along that path. Hans Morgenthau once talked about what the ideologies of isolationism and globalism had in common, which was this unhealthy sense of the absolute. He talked about it loses sight of, quote, that middle ground of subtle distinctions, complex choices, and precarious manipulations that is the proper sphere of foreign policy, and I think the enemy of compromise and adjustment. So I think there is scope here for recovering a geographically sensitive or geographically informed American realism, because this is the, really the final point, that one of the arguments made by uh, the likes of the neoconservatives and some liberal hawks is that geographically based realism, all the things I'm saying now, are essentially suspect European importations. These are intellectually alien to the American tradition, which is about idealism, globalism, and actually rising above nature's limits. Um, I don't think that was always the case, and I think that, like m many countries, America has multiple strategic traditions intellectually, 
And there is a heritage of geographical, geographically informed thinking all the way from George Washington in his farewell address, talking about the importance of space and time to the Republic's growth when it was a fragile thing, all the way to the likes of George Kennan, Walter Lippmann, Hans Morgenthau, uh, people like that. So I think there is scope here for not only recovering a geographically informed realism, but a geographically informed American realism. And the good news, I think, is that we are less powerful but more secure than we think. So thank you very much indeed, and I'll stop talking now. Thank you. Great. Well, I want to say thanks for the opportunity to talk about uh, Patrick's fascinating book. Um, and I'll say at the outset that uh, I find myself agreeing with, with much of it. So any criticism I offer now is in, in that spirit and is more sort of questioning and interrogating the ideas rather than uh, a very serious or fundamental disagreement. But it wouldn't be much of a talk if I just got up here and said what he said. So um, let me offer a few thoughts. So first, I want to talk about some of the the intellectual history and some of the, the ideas part of the book, and then I'll talk a little bit about um, some of the empirics. So uh, I think Patrick does a great job of, of laying out sort of the, the intellectual history of ideas about, about what he calls globalism and, and the shrinking of the world. Um, but I do want to question the level of contingency in how these ideas have evolved. They have sort of turned up again and again um, in American history and American foreign policy. But uh, I want to argue that in at least two instances, one could imagine counterfactuals where uh, these ideas would have found much less fertile soil. And if that's the case, then, then there's probably some role for, for contingency and sort of future grounds of, of this kind of stuff. So uh, in the case of the Korean War, uh, one wonders, he, he mentions that it, the, the real turning point is with the, with the Chinese intervention, which is, of course, in response to, to US escalation. Um, one wonders if there had been more prudence, and here individuals matter. Um, you're talking about the American leadership, both military and civilian. One wonders that had there been more prudence in turning back the initial invasion without, without the drive to the Yalu, if there had been Chinese intervention, without Chinese intervention, would NSC 68 and its sort of intellectual uh, progeny have found such fertile soil? Um, and if that were the case, one could imagine, not that the Cold War wouldn't have happened, but perhaps the ideas about shrinking space and, and, uh, and the sort of the, the need to sound the, the toxin and, and you know, have a certain trumpet might have been a little less fertile. Um, you would have seen perhaps a little bit less of a growth in, in, the, Cold War, uh, in the Cold War state that we saw in the 1950s, uh, what some people have called a cross of iron. Um, and in, in all of those instances, perhaps things would have been at least uh, noticeably, if not completely different. Um, and likewise, I think even more so, there's contingency with the post 9-11. And here there's a real uh, and, and very interesting counterfactual, um, which some of the, the material that was declassified um, that Patrick referenced on Osama's um, bookshelf and some of the surrounding materials, um, suggest that there was a, a real possibility um, that the United States could have gotten fairly limited aims from the Taliban. So our, our proposal to the Taliban was essentially, give us bin Laden, give us 13 of his senior lieutenants, close the training camps, we'll call it a day. Um, there's an argument about how serious the Bush administration was about these, but they had um, a, a pretty smart and, and trusted interlocutor, the head of, of Pakistan's inter services intelligence, uh, General Mahmoud, go to, go, to, go to Kabul and make these uh, promises, go to Kandahar and make these promises. Um, they were not accepted by the Taliban. Um, but one wonders, again, had there, had there been 
um, somewhat more reflection on the part of the Taliban or perhaps a bit more persuasion on the part of, of General Mahmoud is, is this is not an entirely far-fetched counterfactual. Had those individuals been turned over to the United States, the invasion itself would have been unnecessary. Without an invasion, and I'll come back to this, you would not have had a demonstration of, of what people interpreted at the time as uh, the shrinking of geographical space, right? This was hailed as a great revolution in warfare, the ability to project power into this most inaccessible region. Um, absent that, would there have been the, both the political will and the demonstration of the seeming ease with which invasions can take place that enabled the Iraq war invasion, et cetera, et cetera. So there is some contingency, I would argue, in these ideas. And in some ways, that's a very hopeful notion, right? It requires people to make smart choices, um, not just our adversaries, but also here. Um, and that's where I think you know, books like this, and, and uh, I saw the Dangerous World volume that, that Cato did is, is out front as well. Ideas can actually matter if this is contingent. Um, and I think, that's a, I think that's a very important point, that we're not sort of inevitably doomed to go through this cycle again and again, even though if it certainly looks that way um, on the recent historical record. Um, and again, turning to contingency, I want to I point out um, some of the military technical contingency that, that Patrick talks about. Um, the Afghan war was hailed as a, as a revolution because of the projection of power coupled to special operations forces and the intelligence community. Um, but it was a revolution that was a long time in making. And again, these were deliberate choices um, that were accelerated after 9-11, but you'd seen the beginning of many of these uh, technologies. So drones, for example, were not suddenly invented after 9-11. They were, they were a new and uh, uh, growing field at that point. Um, the United States was already engaged in efforts to arm Predator um, before 9-11. Uh, the first flight test was in August of 2001, uh, which explains why you could see the drone strikes in Yemen in early 2002. It's because this was a, a technology we'd been working on for some time. The same is true of the special operations community, which um, had evolved a great deal in the 1990s from you know, at least the, the Joint Special Operations Command end of the, end of the special operations community had evolved from primarily focused on very discrete things like hostage rescue under certain limited conditions to hunting war criminals in the Balkans to hunting warlords in Mogadishu and things like that so that they also were prepared to make this next evolutionary leap um, into conducting what I've called elsewhere um, discrete and limited military operations, right? This idea that the United States could project power globally at a very low cost in terms of, certainly in terms of personnel and lives um, and at a relatively low cost in terms of capital, right? So these are all, again, contingent choices. Um, and it, it reflects the sort of paradox that, that Patrick talks about, that on the one hand, the United States develops these capabilities precisely because it's quite afraid of the world and wants a tool to tinker in the world at low cost. Yet at the same time, because it becomes at least perceived to be so relatively easy uh, to use these, these tools, it becomes... Uh, it becomes the easy button, in a sense. And because it becomes the easy button for policymakers, it's a replacement for the kind of sensible um, and limited ambition strategy that Patrick talks about. So you have a president that proclaims our counterterrorism policy in Yemen was a great success, even as the, the political structure in Yemen is sort of rotting from within, because it seems quite easy to use a lot of these tools. And the same is true in, in other parts of the world as well. So decisions about how to develop some of these technologies and capabilities to police this uh, dangerous world have in turn contributed to the U.S. Uh, sort of willingness and, and the relative ease with which it uses these technologies. So I'll turn briefly from this idea of, of contingency on the, on the ideas and capabilities front to a few 
um, specific empirics, um, some of which Patrick and I talked about before this and just temporarily his book couldn't engage with, and then some that are in the book. So the first I want to talk about that's, that's not in the book is the case of Russia. Um, and the threat from Russia, we can, we can debate how much we, the United States should be invested in NATO, but as long as the United States is invested in NATO, Russia actually is a, is a premier example of both the relative difficulty of projecting power um, in, in the, uh, from, from a long distance, but also the advantages one has from geographic proximity, at least for making mischief. So on the one hand, uh, you know, we live in a, in a world in which it's, it's allegedly easy to project power uh, across great distances. Um, but in fact, if you talk to anyone in, in NATO that deals with the Baltics right now, they're quite worried. And the reason is there's no significant NATO presence in the Baltics outside of the Baltics, very small armed forces, and then a few um, associated American trainers and uh, aircraft that are flying Baltic air patrols. Um, if it were very easy to project power across great distances, this should worry no one. Um, but the, the Russians have invested heavily in the kind of capabilities Patrick talks about um, for access denial, many of which are based in Kaliningrad, which is in, in some sense a, a now become a, a, a porcupine or a speed bump, probably much more than a speed bump, um, to the projection of power into the Baltics. Um, so from that, from that aspect, this is another example of exactly the kind of technologies Patrick is talking about. If it were symmetrical, in other words, if it were a case more like the, the Taiwan Straits, where the Balts could avail themselves of the same kind of technologies, then it might not be such a worry. But here, NATO's boundaries have expanded so much um, that the, the Baltic front lines are quite far from NATO's most developed infrastructure for power projection, ports and things like that. Um, well, they're quite close to Russia, of course. So before the, in, during the Cold War, the battle would have been fought sort of on the inter-German border, um, where both sides were some, at some distance from their homelands, but had very well-developed infrastructure for fighting there. Now the Russians are, of course, um, quite prepared to, to move in the areas on their immediate border, as eastern Ukraine shows, and potentially the Baltics. Um, so there you see, the, the, again, that, that distance still matters um, in a meaningful way, in a strategic um, way, for these kind of conflicts. I'll talk briefly about um, some of the instances uh, on cyber, and then I'll, I'll close. Um, cyber is interesting because, and I think here more than almost any of the technologies Patrick talks about, people tend to be either be completely dismissive or they tend to be massively alarmist. There is typically very little middle ground. Either cyber is going to come and burn your grandmother's house down, or cyber is something you should simply ignore because it's, it's just noise. Um, and I would argue that it's, it's probably neither. Um, it is somewhere in that middle ground that Patrick talked about is really boring for public policy, but is probably um, indicative that you're on the right path. So on the one hand, uh, cyber conflict of a sort is going on every day, but it's typically more akin to the espionage wars that we saw physically during the Cold War um, with people trying to probe each other's defenses and, and to, to get entree into communications, to get spies inside of things like that. Um, it's not destructive. So on the one hand, it's not, it's not meaningless, because of course, um, information is power in, in statecraft, um, what, whatever form it takes. Um, on the other hand, it's not something that is readily going to lead to the complete destruction of infrastructure. Um, as, as Patrick says, there's a lot of agency in how one designs one in, in one's infrastructure, how one connects it to uh, the internet and other networks and things like that. So, I would say that on cyber, th this book is in some ways most needed as a corrective, that cyber does not automatically erase distance and barriers and things like that. Yet at the same time, it can't, it can't simply be ignored as 
as something that has no meaning. And in fact, as, as he points out, it typically operates as part of a team uh, of other military and, and technical assets. And so that's the one bit on, on cyber that I think, if anything, Patrick could have um, been more emphatic on is the, is the need for uh, some level of, uh, of balance in that. So thanks very much. As I said, it's a, it's a fantastic book, um, and I encourage all of you to, to pick it up and read it. Thank you very much. Thanks for those remarks, Austin. That was great. Um, Patrick, so I would defer to you if you wanted to, to take any of that right out of the gate, or if you want, we could fold anything that you had to say into ostensible responses to questions from the audience. Well, why don't we do that? Let's yeah. do that. Yeah. Okay, great. So what I'll do is call on people. Please wait for a microphone to come to you. Uh, please ask uh, pointed, brilliant questions. Um, direct them at someone in particular. Um, and let's go to the lady right down here in the front. Do you hear me? Ah, no. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Diana Molino. Thank you very much. I cannot wait to read your book. You. Uh, you, you spoke about, about space, the two kinds of spaces, but there is also a time factor in this. And uh, really, we are going through a historical acceleration because of technology. What is the influence? this is going to have on, 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 on space. Uh, your second chapter says that globalism is not new, but really the shrinking of space and the feeling of shrinking of space is probably rather new because of this technology that has advanced so fast. If you could elaborate on this. I'll take a few in there. Sure. Yeah, well, well, let's take one more. Somebody, how about the gentleman right there? I don't know how to identify you, sir. You, you, I've got you. Uh, I'm Hank Gaffney, former OSD and um, Center for Naval Analyses, 54 years in Washington. Um, I, I, I pretty much agree with everything that uh, Dr. Porter has been saying uh, from my experience. For instance, I've never heard at any high level uh, in anybody say in the U.S. government um, use the word hegemony. <laughs> They, 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 they got problems to solve, and there's a world out there they have to get there or whatever. Uh, nor do they ever say, I've never heard anybody ever say, this is in our national interest. Um, but the, the noise level of uh, the so supposed IR scholars, uh, none of whom I've found any useful in all my uh, 54 years of international work, um, and the pundits all pressing for all of these dangers, um, how do we um, overcome that and sort that out? What about time and how do we fix international relations? Well, I'll, I'll do the last one first because I can't wait. Um, <laughs> I, I, I take your point that words like hegemony, which sound all terribly grave and, and intellectually impressive, are not, not the currency of, of the policymakers. They, but they do have a very a very uh, strongly worded and um, very specific set of ideas all bound up in the word leadership. The American, the American use of the word and the Western word use of the word leadership conveys and has conveyed for a long time a set of actual very specific doctrines about how America should relate to the, West, the rest of the world beyond putting man on the moon. 
right? Uh, it's about reassurance, particularly in East Asia, so that you do the defence spending and the commitment so you prevent others getting back into multipolar rivalries. It's about uh, coercion and deterrence and all of those things. So there is an ideology there, and one of the difficulties is in, in, in questioning it, or even suggesting it should be more modest, right? Um, there is the flip ideology of withdrawal, um, irresponsibility, retreat, all that kind of thing. And what I'm suggesting here is that actually one payoff of realising the vastness of the potential vastness of things is to make us realise there are a whole series of intermediate options which can be entertained. Now, absolutely, some policymakers entertain them, but when they do, they are, they are subject to this rhetoric. It is the standard by which one is judged, as President Obama is, is finding now, I think. You know. um, in terms of um, time, uh, oh, fixing international relations, sorry, how can I forget? Uh, I think there's actually a lot of stuff being written about this, this, these sort of things which is, is not being picked up. I think what IR scholars are trying to do more and more is find digestible ways of writing it, um, putting it in other places. So websites like The Monkey Cage, where a lot of recent cutting-edge research is being turned into very good op-ed-style um, sound bites for the busy policymaker, and I totally understand that. I think we're getting better at that, actually, as we're going. Uh, I realise there's some way to go. But we also need the ear of the policymaker. And one difficulty here is that, is that sometimes the policymaker's ear is closed and only opens when they hear what they want to hear. So there is a, a, a mutuality to what we need here, right, uh, that's for that relationship to work well. Uh, in terms of time, uh, thank you very much for that question. I, I agree. I mean, the, the fear that time itself is, is accelerating dramatically. I mean, there's Karl Marx sitting on a train in the 19th century saying he's a, a witnessing the obliteration of space by time, you know, or time by space. But I th my, what I would say back to that is that although that's true, that's also true of the defensive double-edged side of the ledger, that it's true that means of offence are much faster, means of travel are much faster, but that also applies to the defender. So the great debate about railways, for example, in the 19th century, and the fear that railways would obliterate space, and Halford McKinder's fear that with the coming of the railway, one power could dominate Eurasia because it was an offensive tool. But what one thing we know now, particularly bitterly from the First World War, is how much the railway can be a very powerful means of defence. So that every time one of these things is introduced, there's almost always some flip side. So that it's true that there's acceleration, but that applies across the board, not just to one side of the ledger. So I think that still is true. Yeah. Let's go uh, right there. Alex Curse, Booz Allen Hamilton. Um, so my question has to do with the, your discussion. I don't know what our mics are on the fritz, sorry. No worries. Um, so my question has to do with the, the idea that you're talking about physical space, what about different types of space, such as cultural space. Do you see an expansion or contraction of physical space being mirrored or, or in a different sense impacting the cultural space in terms of you might see flattening of commercialization across the gold lobe, such as sometimes <coughs> counterinsurgency conflicts or alien wars, you see the US the conflict with cultures we might not understand. Culture and maybe, I don't know, identity, if mm. you want to fold that in. Um, let's go right down here in the front to the gentleman right here. James Sang, a related question. I was actually looking at your Orwell quotes and the articles, in, and he talks about economics. And in particular, he has a quote that economics tendency to trend to economic self-sufficiency might be actually getting might be getting worse it was in a modern world a post-war world and so i was wondering if you'd like to talk about uh, localization and globalization economics where it certainly seems that even 
even countries like China are not really autarkical anymore. Mm. So commerce, identity, and culture. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm going to sing for my lunch here. Uh, <laughs> I think the, the key thing with economics, and I'm not an economist, as, as my comment's about to make clear, uh, the key thing with economics in terms of the globalization debate is that globalization waxes and wanes over time, I think principally depending on the will of the great powers. One of the conceits of the globalization, of some globalization theorists, is to imagine that this happens almost mechanically, that this is a natural force, that it happens almost without politics. Now, that actually can't be true, that what, what happened, for example, the violent opening up of the Chinese and Japanese economies of the 19th century, uh, the monetary regimes, the sea lanes, the, the regulations, this is very much a matter of, uh, as someone once said, I think, uh, in one pessimistic book, globalization is a choice, not a fact. Maybe not for everybody, but certainly for the great powers. And so um, it's, not, it, it, it's there, but it's not irreversible, and it's not always even. Um, in terms of uh, autarky, absolutely agree. I think that all, one of the things Orwell was sort of predicting in World War II, which didn't quite work out, was the increasing tendency towards autarky, sort of extrapolating from what Nazi Germany w was being and that kind of thing. Um, but it's also the case that there are levels of independence and levels of reliance, and states historically show themselves to be quite adaptable. If you read the work of uh, Daryl Press, for example, Eugene Galtz, they talk about... So this, this common notion that, for example, countries like Australia or America simply can't afford other great powers to have a war. Now, clearly, other, other great powers having a war is undesirable on many levels. But historically, the pattern is that even during periods of great interdependence, other states are actually pretty canny at adjusting to that and sometimes even benefiting and writing off that that it's not necessarily the case that the world is so fragile and interdependent that we must have peace everywhere. And that's one of the, that's one of the sort of economic dimensions of this argument. That's as much as I'll say before I, I've just reached the end of my economic knowledge, so I'll stop right there. Uh, in terms of um, cultural space, I think there actually there is an interesting uh, disjuncture here that we do seem to live in a time where really confronting cultural images, seemingly alien or exotic images can be transmitted very quickly. And the Islamic State makes a real practice of that in terms of beaming those images into our homes. Um, but I think there again, one of the problems with the project of leadership and the project of a, a global hegemony or an or a, um, attempt to reinvent the world in our image, that, that creates actually a, a degree of incuriosity about the world, that the world is actually culturally multipolar, which it is, whether or not it's in power political terms, we can debate that all day, but th there are a number of different cultures. The desire to, to, to be a missionary and transform that makes one, I think, a degree, to a sense, in a sense, impatient with the confrontation with difference or otherness and that sort of thing. Um, I think one argument for a more restrained role in a multipolar world is that one can live more easily with difference. Um, there is a real problem here, though. That I'm, I mean, I'm from a country where, a couple of things, we weren't founded out of protest. We were supposed to be a giant prison. <laughs> there, is, there isn't the same ideological energy that there was in the, in the American project. And there are a number of strands in the American project where, confronted with the old world, there is the impulse to sort of transform it or the impulse to sort of recoil from it. And it's those two, that sort of push and pull of leadership and withdrawal which I think takes some arguing against. But I think there, are, there is an American realism that can counter that. Yeah. Sorry. The irony, of course, would be if America, founded as a giant prison, became a liberal republic, and America, founded as a liberal republic, became, turned itself into a giant prison. Um, hopefully present trends won't continue. The gentleman right there.
Professor Porter, it was a splendid talk. One subject that is always debated and unresolved in American defense strategy is the balance between American efforts and those of its allies. Yes. I mean, there is always anyone on the right or left in this country say, will always say our allies aren't doing enough. But were they truly to do more than the, at the magic 2% of GDP or more, they might have their own ideas which would not be wholly compatible with American objectives. And were, say, Japan or Germany to or Britain, for that matter, to pursue a truly independent strategy, the world might not be fooled and would view them essentially as proxy for the United States. So what are your thoughts as to the balance between American efforts and those of its allies. Let's take one more. John Mueller, right there. Hey, uh, John Mueller, Cato in Ohio State. Uh, could you uh, talk a little bit more about the dis distant difference between distance and interconnectedness? It sort of comes out of your Taiwan thing, that basically China could not attack Taiwan. It, there'd be a lot of difficulties, physical and so forth, but it'd also cause a huge amount of uh, economic strife within it because of its interconnectedness. If we're not, and that's a different issue, and I'm not quite sure how it fits into your uh, into your uh, way of thinking. Okay, um, so the question of of free riding and, and burdens and allies, I, I think you've put your your finger on the dilemma. There's a wonderful book written by Richard Betts, an article Richard written by Richard Betts a few years ago, which was had a very good title. It was "Half a Trillion Dollars a Year is More Than Enough." Uh, the, the, the size, maybe the size of the defence budget, is is not really primarily the issue. It's the distribution and the work and the alliances. I think that calling for others to do more is fine as one, as long as one recognises that that comes at a price, like anything, and it might. And the irony here is that the original design, if you like, of the American grand strategy that grew up, I think, particularly in the early 1950s and carried on a long time with some interludes, like the Nixon-Kissinger interlude, but essentially the idea was that to prevent another World War II or 1930s type scenario, to transform the world in a good way, required a level of American security commitment that would dampen down the fears of others, particularly in places like Western Europe and East Asia, that America would do the defense spending for it. Now, this is very attractive to West European social democrats because it means that for the America doing that, they can actually plow a lot of money into welfare states. I mean, it's an arrangement that worked for a lot of people really well. And the Europeans um, wanted America to stay and to have the right to complain about them, and the Americans wanted the Europeans not to spend too much money on defence and to complain about it. <laughs> so you have this very complex, ironic relationship. And if it's the case that America, if it's the case that it's in America's most prudent interests to spend less on defence and more on other things, particularly urgently needed things at home, and if it's the case that it wants its allies to do more, then that will probably come at a strategic cost of other allies behaving more robustly, more independently, uh, countries all the way from Germany to Australia to Japan. And the question is whether that's an acceptable cost. Now, I think it's inevitable anyway, because I think I don't think the state of affairs can keep going. There's a model in the early 1950s, which is quite an artificial moment. And I, I think at some point, some adjustment is necessary. It's not dramatically necessary, but an adjustment, right? But that means you will have a growing gradual multipolarity in the sense of powers being more independently minded. So the question is whether that's okay, whether that's, and that's, there's no way of analytically resolving that. That's a judgment call. Um, in terms of interconnectedness, yeah, I'm not as I'm not as sanguine about. I agree with you that 
interconnectedness makes it more difficult is an obstacle. I just don't think it's as decisive as sometimes put in sort of liberal theory. Uh, I think there are enough cases of interconnected countries with interconnected economics suddenly defining their interests in a different way, even if that's very expensive. And I think if there's one issue that China has made very clear that it would draw a red line on, it's, it's Taiwan. Lots of other ambiguities in other areas, and it's not clear this is going to happen. But I think if there's one issue on which, from what we, from what we, th we can know about the People's Republic, that it would act on decisively and pay a very large price if necessary would be, for example, a unilateral de declaration of independence. Could be wrong, um, but I think that I would, I would simply say the interconnectedness is an obstacle, but not a, not as strong a one as you might think. But I believe Dale Copeland has been here to argue about this all recently. I, I just want to jump in on the the allies point. I, I think you're right that it, that is it, it is a dichotomy. I just think historically and certainly at the present time, if you imagine a spectrum from the allies spend literally nothing to the allies have their you know complete independence and are spending a huge amount of their GDP on defense. Um, I think we're much closer to that zero point. And so e even if you could imagine many of our allies doubling their their defense spending commitments, it's not clear they would get that much additional capability to pursue truly uh, unilateral foreign policies. And I'll just point to the two NATO members that are actually trying to raise their defense, defense budget with some success, which is Poland and Norway. Um, it's no accident that they see themselves as the as the closest credible countries to Russia. Mm. Um, the Balts, I mean, if, even if they spent 50% of their GDP, it's still, God bless them, not that much. Um, whereas Norway and Poland both have, have some capability um, to, to spend, and, and they are, and yet they're also the ones um, that in some sense are clutching hardest to, to not just NATO, um, but you know, perhaps uh, a little concerned about the, their other NATO allies. They're clutching, clutching very closely to the United States um, specifically, not just NATO. That's interesting. Patrick made the point about, uh, you know, we want to reserve the right to complain about them not spending enough, and they want to reserve the right to complain about uh, a variety of things um, here. And, of course, the, the American desideratum here would be you guys spend lots and lots on your defense and turn all the materiel and people over to us under our command structure, and we'll, we'll do with them as we see fit, but that seems uh, probably unlikely. Um, another point, and just we had a, a, a discussant uh, uh, pull out at the 11th hour, so we're going to go ahead and adjourn shortly. I should mention um, that we have the book for sale. I've done a number of these rodeos before, and so I sometimes forget to point out there are books for sale. They may even give you a discount by the case if you select uh, to buy so many. It's a terrific book, and one of the turns of phrase that particularly Patrick gave a great talk, but somebody who writes in print like this um, finally, I consider the so what question, uh, which is anybody who's been through a sort of graduate political science program, the so what question sometimes never gets asked in these books, let alone answered. So I think that the, the prose and the clarity of thought uh, lends itself to, to being, insofar as a book like this can be a page turner, being a page turner. We have them for sale. Buy them. Um, and after you buy them, please join us upstairs for sandwiches and Diet Cokes and further uh, discussions with Professor Porter and Professor Long. And please join me in thanking them for the discussion here today. Thank you.